Okay, so what I'd love to do um, on this Facebook Live is talk a little bit about the idea of the holy. Um, as some of you know, I've been on tour for the last uh, three or four months with Rob Bell on his Holy Shift Tour. And uh, we finished the first leg a few weeks ago, and we'll be doing a second leg uh, at the second half of the year. And so the notion of the holy has been playing on my mind a little. Uh, and then I gave a seminar, my Paro seminars, a couple of days ago, in an in-depth look at the holy and what this word actually means. So what I just wanted to do here is give a short summary of that seminar. Uh, not go quite as deep, but to kind of talk about some of the themes. And uh, I'd like to start with something interesting that Martin Luther said. Uh, it's a very religious saying, but I'm going to uh, pare it down in this Facebook Live and kind of look at it uh, in a way that transcends a merely kind of religious connotation. So basically what he said is that the fear of God is not open to natural man. That's what he says. So he says, the, the proper fear of God is not open to natural man, which, you know, is a way of saying that uh, human beings can't experience the fear of the divine. Um, now, what's interesting about that is at first sight, it seems like the opposite of what you hear religious people saying. Uh, you know, a religious person might say that it's actually the fear of God that creates the religious subject. You might be frightened of, you know, at an extreme going to hell, or you might feel guilty that you have, uh, you know, sinned against the divine. And this is actually the first step in you becoming a religious individual. And that actually, once you become a religious subject, you're freed from the fear of God, right? And of course, uh, you know, a, a kind of a non-religious view of that is, the notion that you know, religious people scare people into becoming Christian. You get a pile of young people together and you try to get them frightened about where they will spend their eternal destiny um, and then you ask them to put up their hands and accept Jesus. So what does Luther mean when he turns this around and says, no, 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 the fear of God, properly speaking, is not um, open to everyday life and it's not it's not part of the secular experience of life that actually it's not a step towards becoming a religious subject but it is evidence that you are already a religious subject so to understand that uh, it it's good to fast forward to uh, Rudolf Otto and his book uh, The Idea of the Holy which is a fantastic book you can get it free online because it's in open source and uh, well worth reading, particularly the first five chapters. Uh, it's an important book, I think, for psychology um, as well as uh, for philosophy and theology. But in this book, uh, Rudolf Otto um, tries to get to the core of what he thinks inspires the true, authentic, religious uh, subject. And now, Rudolf Otto is a big fan of rationality. He's written uh, before this book on doctrine, um, he's interested in philosophy. But in the idea of the holy, he says that at its core, religion is non-rational or supra-rational. Now, he's very careful to say this doesn't mean it's irrational or that the religious subject um, doesn't like reason. 
In fact, Rudolf Otto privileges reason. He thinks reason is incredibly important in our lives, obviously in our scientific endeavours, but also in our individual and religious lives. But he says that religion is not primarily rational. It is a form of experience and that he wants to unpack what that is. Uh, and he does it very, very beautifully. And he calls this experience the experience of the mysterium tremendum. So the mysterium tremendum, uh, that is at the core of the authentic religious experience. And he says in the book, you know, if you haven't had this experience, you're not going to get much out of the book, right? So it's more for if you have experienced what this is. Now, of course, he has to define what it is, but um, uh, he says that at its core, there is a feeling that births uh, the religious sensibility. Now, he contrasts the Mysterium Tremendum with Schleimacher's notion of uh, the feeling of absolute dependence. So many of you will know that Schleimacher, one of the famous kind of liberal theologians, and a very deep philosophical thinker, uh, he said that the core of the religious experience is a feeling of absolute dependence. You know, that you feel that your finitude rests on something greater than yourself, something other than you, and that religious doctrine and religious ideas are attempts at uh, remaining true to that feeling of absolute dependence, uh, celebrating it, um, exploring it, but at its worst, dogma and theory covers over it, gets rid of it. So Schleimacher has this real sensitivity to this human experience of dependence, and he builds this whole way of thinking from this. Um, now, I, I think there are certain problems with that, I won't go into those today, but, but um, I also agree with Rudolf Otto's issue with it. Otto's like, okay, no, Schleimacher's onto something, definitely. But first thing Otto says is, well, here, absolute dependence is not really a religious thing. You can feel absolutely dependent if you're a prisoner. Uh, you're absolutely dependent on the prison guards, right? And that's not a good thing. You can feel absolutely dependent if you're a child in relation to your parents. Or if you're um, scuba diving and you're with an instructor. Or you're parachuting out of a plane and you're connected to somebody who's an expert. You may, in those moments, feel a sense of absolute dependence. And Otto was saying that, you know, that's that's not the core, that it, there's something deeper. And Schleimacher is kind of trying to get at it, but just hasn't quite nailed it. Now Schleimacher realizes this himself, and talks about this notion of absolute dependence as being, you know, not just a dependence in one circumstance, but in your entire being as a creature. But Otto says that's still not enough, right? And we'll get, we'll get to that in a second, so it's still not enough. And the second issue he has with it is the feeling of absolute dependence um, isn't connected with anything outside. You know, it's, it's, exact, it's a subjective, purely subjective feeling. And Otto wants to connect it with something mysterious and other. So he uses the term mysterium tremendum which could be translated as the tremor of the encounter with the mysterious. The, the, the awe and the awfulness of the mystical moment. 
So this Mysterium Tremendum actually has this sense of fear built into it. But it's not normal fear. It's not like fear of a, of a tiger or fear of heights or something like that. It's, it's different from fear. So what Rudolf Otto is doing here is he is, um, uh, he is uh, this is before really the development of, of psychoanalysis. He's making an incredibly important distinction that will become very significant in the 20th century. Because what Otto was saying is he's saying the psychologists of the day, and this goes for many uh, psychological uh, approaches today as well, do, do not make a qualitative distinction between fear and anxiety, or between fear and dread, or between you know, being scared and feeling a sense of the ominous. So first thing Otto is doing is he's parsing out these two types of feelings. He's saying they're not just a difference in quantity, which is what the psychologists of the day were mostly saying, and the popular opinion. He's saying it is a difference in quality. They are qualitatively different. And the religious subject is the one who experienced this, experiences this ominous feeling in their experience of the world. And so uh, Otto talks about the numinous. He says the numinous is that which draws out the ominous. And so you've got the numinous and the ominous, which come from the same root. So he goes like the numinous, the numinal realm, the other realm, is encountered not as something homely, not as something like us, not as something that is kind of different from us, but pretty much the same. Like, you know, a, a tiger is different, but it's still a being, it's a thing, just like us. The numinous is the encounter of something that is utterly other, that doesn't make us feel like fantastic, it actually causes us to shudder. It's a feeling of the uncanny in life that we try to protect ourselves from in all manner of ways. Um, so that's the tremendum part of the Mysterium Tremendum, that there is a tremor that the religious subject feels. This is, in you know, Hebrew scriptures, the fear of God. So when you read about the fear of God, it's nothing to do with God as a, as a angry warrior or something like that. That's a kind of a mythological, superstitious notion. But underneath all of that is this notion that um, the religious subject feels their creatureliness, they, they feel their, their subjectivity, they feel that they are decentered and made to feel not at home in the world. So that's what the fear of God kind of means in its core, is that you suddenly are not at home in your own body, in your own being. You're decentered, distorted, displaced. And then the mysterium side of this is the uh, is is the kind of the object of this tremor, but Otto is very careful in saying right. There's there's wrong ways of thinking about this mystery, and there's good ways of thinking about it. So the first wrong way to think about it is he says, well, uh, well, I'll take a contemporary example. Um, televisions are a mystery to me. I don't know how they work. Right? I look at a television set. It's mysterious to me. I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of it. However, I could learn how to understand the television set, right? So it's, it's mysterious only because I don't have the knowledge or the expertise, but I could 
learn about it and then it wouldn't be mysterious to me. But for Otto, uh, that's not a mystery, that's a problem. And Gabriel Marcel, the great 20th century philosopher, uses the same distinction. He says that's a scientific problem, that's not a religious mystery. But then you could turn it up and you could say, okay, well, what if there are things, which of course there are, that are mysterious because I don't have the mental capacity to ever understand them, right? Might, maybe it's some sort of uh, understanding of physics or advanced mathematics that basically the human mind is just not capable of grasping. In, not even like uh, in, in practice, but in theory, we would never be able to do it. But Otto says that's still not what the word mysterious means. Because of course we could build a computer that might be able to, do, to understand. Um, it's again only mysterious to us. The, the level that Otto was talking about is the idea that the mysterious is inherently other. So other that it can never be reduced to the realm of existence or being as we understand those terms. In fact, the best word we can use for it probably is nothing or void, right? So that's why, like, you know, in some forms of Buddhism, you have the idea of the nothingness, or in Western mysticism, uh, nothingness or the void. Uh, these mystics uh, are, are saying that from our perspective, this other uh, appears as nothing, as, because there's no way that we can conceptualize in any way. So what happens is you negatively encounter this because you, you don't ever encounter it. It's a nothingness, it's an absence that is present, just like a ghost. A ghost for Otto is like a degraded form of this. When you're afraid of a ghost, you're not afraid of something that's there, but weirdly it's kind of present in its absence. And that's kind of like a hint analogously of what we're talking about. The noumenal realm is a realm that is only experienced negatively, but as a negativity that, that strikes us at our core. So in this way, Otto is a romantic, a romantic writer. You know? So the romanticists um, of the 19th century, uh, they were very big into the importance of singularity, subjective feeling, the importance of emotion, of strong emotion. And so, you know, Otto's stuff on dread, uh, on holy awe, uh, or the uncanny, really connects with that kind of romantic um, ideal. And romanticism is like the, uh, the great counter, um, the counter enlightenment movement, you know, against industrialization and making humans one dimensional. So Otto is in this kind of frame of, the, the religious subject experiencing this feeling of, of deep shuddering at the core of your being. Um, so where do you want to go from there? Okay, one of the important things then that Otto does is he, 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 um, he's, like, he's a proto-Freudian in some ways, like he is making a distinction between fear and anxiety. That's something that results from an encounter with some object, uh, some enemy, an army, a, 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 an animal, uh, with this, this anxiety, which is a confrontation with, in a sense, nothingness itself. It doesn't have an object. It doesn't have an object that you can define as such. Uh, in, in religion, it's a, it's a kind of object, but not an object. Right? Uh, 
For Freud, this is the unconscious, right? So in the 20th century, you see these notions of the holy find also a secular form. So there's the religious understanding, which is that there's a noumenal realm out there that is wholly other, and that as that noumenal realm clashes with the phenomenal world, the world that we're in, the result is a very unique experience called the Mysterium Tremendum. Uh, in psychoanalysis then, the secularization of this, um, and also in existentialism, you have this notion of a noumenal realm within us that's not in us as in ourselves, but somehow permeates our very being. I mean, you have that in the mystics as well, but you have this notion of the unconscious, something that that is going on within you that disturbs and distorts the everyday run of your life, that prevents you from actually just being a machine, to be honest, and being able to be plugged in. It's, it's what causes all of your symptoms, your repetitive compulsions, all of those weird mistakes that you make, all of those things that make you a singular individual. The, the distortion that individuates you is, is this, in a sense, unconscious. And, you know, within Freudianism, the unconscious at its core isn't something that we have repressed. You know, so, you know I've repressed anger at my, you know, my friend, and it's come out in, you know, some other way, in an outburst of crying over some silly advert or something like that. So in other words, I've, I've, I've repressed my anger and it's come out somewhere else. And, the, and so the unconscious is what I've repressed. Uh, technically speaking, no, that, that's not what the unconscious is. The unconscious is deeper than that. It is that which by definition can't be brought to consciousness. It, 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 it is at its core, the utterly impenetrable void that decenters, destabilizes, and cuts us in half. And it's very analogous to Rudolf Otto's notion of the mysterious, not as what we do not understand yet, but could understand. Like, you know, the unconscious, you know, I don't understand what's unconscious, but if I listen to my dreams, I can, I'll be able to encounter it. But actually that these are inherently um, inaccessible domains that make their impact felt on our lives. Now, all of this is important for this reason. In the sacred and the secular world, there are all sorts of ways to defend ourselves against this mysterium tremendum, right? It's a, in religion, so much of confessional theology is designed precisely to get rid of this dread, right? That's what, it, you know, it's all about, you'll be fine, it'll all be good. It's everything is designed to get rid of the fear of God not expose it, not like draw yourself more deeply into it, not find some good in it, right? It's to defend yourself against it. And in the secular world, it's the same. There's all these things that we do, whether it's like silly uh, going to Disneyland or something, which is fine, right? But, but go, going and going and having holidays, do whatever, to protect ourselves from this dread, this, this ominous feeling. Like every time we feel it, we might want to just call up a friend, go out for a drink, listen to some pop music, try to make more money, throw ourselves into work, whatever it is. So whether it's in the sacred or secular worlds, there are all sorts of rituals we have to protect ourselves from Rudolf Otto's notion of the mysterium tremendum. But within parotheology, 
the idea is to find ways to sensitize yourself to that experience of dread. Now, it sounds weird at first, because instead of running away from it, closing yourself off from it, it's the idea that it is actually an inherent part of existence that you cannot get rid of, right? No matter how many cognitive behavioral therapies you do, right? Um, that it, 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 it is in us, and that actually the trick is to affirm it, sensitize ourselves to it, find the transformative power within it to be able to say yes to it. And in doing so, finding that that actually enriches our lives, deepens our lives, brings more joy into our lives, which is the opposite of what we would think. You know, that dread, that mysterium tremendum, that awfulness, the awfulness of that experience, it sounds terrifying, but actually it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And it's so difficult for us to open ourselves up to it because it seems so terrifying. It looks like you're going to lose your life. That we need rituals to help us do that. And that's why in parotheology there are techniques that are used that are designed to help us enter into this rather than leave it. And so all I want to do in this Facebook Live is give that slight definition, show that there is a sacred and a secular notion of the Mysterium Tremendum, and say that in both the sacred and secular worlds, there are ways of defending and shoring up your defenses against that experience. But there is also, importantly, um, counter-revolutions, uh, counter-movements that are designed to help you find a way to, um, what would be the word, to bear the unbearable light of that dread, to somehow, um, just like seeing, you know, the idea of seeing the face of God, you'll kind of burn up, but somehow it was that Moses hid behind a rock and saw a little bit of the face of God. You know, it's like, how, how do we find rituals that help us to touch, glimpse this Mysterium Tremendum in a way that actually enlightens and illuminates and deepens our experience of life? Uh, and the argument would be, which I've looked at in the book study on Tillich's Courage to Be, is that this is a way of affirming life. The more you cut yourself off from that, the more you actually cut yourself off from all of these experiences in life. Because the Mysterium Tremendum, it's like, it's like this dread that is in you in a slight way, if you don't face it, it will manifest itself in fear of you know, earthquakes, in fear of heights, in fear of uh, cars, planes, uh, you know, all of the, uh, uh, answering emails, answering phone calls, it doesn't matter, hanging out with people, enclosed spaces, open spaces. If, if the, this kind of weird sense of dread will attach itself to all sorts of things that get in the way of you being able to affirm life. But if you're able to, in a sense, face that dread and bring it into you to affirm it, to say yes to it, then you will find very gradually your concrete fears begin to dissipate. Now, not your concrete fears of real things. I mean, there are things to be frightened of, right? But any of the fears that you have that don't seem to be rational, like that there's something under your bed or whatever, right? Those fears that you know aren't rational, but they still terrify you, those will begin to dissipate as you're able to confront the mysterious tremendum.
And so, in a sense, I think Luther is absolutely right, but obviously he's doing it in a very religious sense. But Luther's kind of intuition here, his insight, is that it's not that this this tremor, this dread, is something that you feel and then you enter into a different form of life that is freed from it. It's that when you enter into a kind of a deeper form of life, you experience this dread. This dread is evidence that you're sensitive to a dimension that makes you human. You have, whether you like it or not, you might hate it, but that feeling of the ominous is what uh, humanizes you and sensitizes you. It is a victory. It is something to celebrate. It's an incredible thing because we defend ourselves against it so much that actually the feeling of the ominous that you have is, um, is something to be, be proud of in a way. But that um, the trick and the difficult act is to somehow find life within that, to find uh, meaning within that rather than for it to be destructive. And weirdly, I think it's a halfway point when you feel the ominous but protect yourself against it. It just explodes fear all around in your life. You become fearful of so many things. But when you're able to fully embrace the, the, the ominous of the numinous, you are able to dissipate your fears. And this is religious subjectivity in its most authentic form. Okay, I will end the reflections there. If I can see your comments, I'll uh, have a look and see if you've got any questions. Um, otherwise, I'll, uh, I'll let you get on with your day. Uh, there's Kent Dobson, how's it going? Um, okay, I see a few comments, not very many, I wonder. I'm just gonna go on to my iPhone and look here. Uh, so this will take just a couple of seconds. Ah, here are the comments. Uh, oh yeah, Dave says, Mysterium Tremendum, this is a diagnosis for what I've been feeling since my, uh, oh, I lost it, since my evangelical faith unraveled four years ago. Yeah, here's the thing, Rudolf Otto was going to be a minister. He wanted to be a minister, but they wouldn't let him because <laughs> uh, they thought he was a bit crazy. Um, and so, like, in a sense, he's writing this incredibly beautiful book but as someone who um, probably had the same experience of you, uh, you know, leaving, you know, not, but I, for him, I don't know what happened, whether whether he went to church or anything like that, but ultimately this this writing, this book comes from, uh, he, he didn't find a home within the confessional church, let's put it that way. Uh, oh yeah, William says, why is there an obsession with separating and defining difference between the conscious and the unconscious, the spiritual and the natural, the sacred and the secular. I'm not sure these distinctions, oh no, I can't see the rest of your comment, I'm sorry. I'm guessing you're saying I can't see why these distinctions are useful, maybe, or important, or um, or helpful, I, I think. I, but no, I would say that they are um, not necessarily those distinctions, some of those are just kind of weird distinctions, but in philosophy and in science, Distinctions are always being made, but the, the, the key is, in a sense, you're trying to make incisions into the world in order to understand. So language is like drilling holes into undifferentiated being, which means that, that it's not that the world kind of conforms to our distinctions, 
but that the distinctions, in a sense, provide a way of breaking up reality in a way that is helpful for understanding. But so, like, the conscious and unconscious is important because uh, the unconscious seems to, is definitely a domain which is very different from the conscious. Um, they are intertwined, and psychoanalysis is all about how they're intertwined, but, you know, you want to talk about what is this distortion that is happening uh in our consciousness and that's given the name unconscious but yeah but it's not distinctions i think i think your concern william if i'm right i do want to uh assume that i understand what you're saying but i think you're saying that these very basic oppositions like where there's some you know consciousness on one side unconscious on the other side that they're 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 rubbish right yeah that's a common sense way of understanding they, they don't they don't hold that's true but but dialectic thinking sees how they're much more intertwined. So the unconscious is a and the unconscious and the conscious are both manifestations of the subject of subjectivity, and it's a parallax view and all of that. So yeah, if I hear you correctly, um, these simple distinctions where we break the world into um, yeah, you know very basic sacred and secular distinctions is problematic. But to use those terms to get a purchase on complex ideas, I think is more useful. Anyway, I'm waffling. Sorry about that. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll have a little look, see if there's anything else here. Jonathan says, perhaps fear is felt at different levels, the neurotic, the existential, and the transcendental. Yeah, as so Jonathan's saying, um, yeah, fear, Right, it's felt, perhaps felt at different levels. So there's a neurotic fear. Well, here's the thing. I think it's a useful distinction between fear and anxiety. That's a basic, always the analytic distinction between fear and anxiety. Um, now, the, the re, what Otto is saying is that these are not just different levels. So he's saying he's saying they're not just different qualities, or sorry, not just different quantities. Right? They are different qualities. And I think that is one of the insights of religious theory. And I think there are certain insights of religious theory, this is one of them, is that religious theory might have been one of the first places where um, this distinction was made, a very important distinction. So the neurotic feels, an feels anxiety, but manifested as fear. So the fear of like spiders or mice or whatever, right? So the neurotic fear of these things is displaced anxiety. Um, I, Otto would like to say that, that that type of anxiety is different from the mysterious tremendum. I'm sure he would, but I don't think I don't think he could. So yeah, it's whether they're just different levels or whether they're absolutely different things. And I'm, all I want to say is that Otto um, and Freud would want to say they're different things. Whereas a cognitive behavioral therapist, for example, might want to say that they are different quantities of basically the same thing. Uh, let's see, I'll do one more. Um, let's see, from Carl. I find Otto's talk of the numinous to be a strong critique of modernity and its project uh, to flatten humanity, to eject existential observation from serious dialogue yes and sadly carl yet again i can't see your full comment 
Um, so I know you say more than that, but you say, I find all this talk of the numinous to be a strong critique of modernity and its project to flatten humanity and eject existential observation from serious dialogue. Absolutely. Um, I can't, off the top of my head, remember exactly when uh, Rudolf Otto was writing. I'm guessing it's the 1800s, um, uh, 18, early 1800s, might be a lot earlier than that. But, but I, so I don't know whether he's, he's technically in the Romantic period, but yes, he very much is a Romanticist. And Romantics were, were very much the intellectual and artistic critique of, um, of kind of industrialization of society, of the uh, kind of um, uh, and, and, and uh, rationality and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, Otto is definitely part of the part of the vanguard of attack um, against the reduction to one dimensionality that you see in behaviorism, that you see in some forms of humanism, that you saw in the development of industrialization. Uh, and he's a very important thinker now. He very much influenced Paul Tillich. You know, Tillich, who's a romanticist in many ways, grew up with that, um, with that type of sentiment, uh, was very close to Rudolf Otto. Okay, thank you very much for listening in. Um, I will uh, hopefully come back to one of these uh, sometime soon. Well, before I go, just to let you know, I've got a few things coming up. I have my Wake Festival. We're going for the biggest one yet. That's in 2019. Um, I can't wait to tell you who we've got as our guests, but I'm not going to tell you because we've got the early birds for sale. We can't tell you who's going to come until we've sold the early birds, uh, which is the 1st of July, I think. But check that out on my website, Wake Festival is going to be happening. I also in November have a creative retreat in one of my favourite places in the world, in Northern Ireland, uh, where we're going to uh, have this five days of hanging out together and uh, explore how to develop our creative skills and um, develop the practical side of that as well. And then also in a few weeks in LA, I'm doing a public speaking workshop. I've just literally come off doing the, uh, the tour with Rob and I want to talk about the, the talk that I was giving there as an example of public speaking. I want to, for anybody who is scared of getting in front of an audience and wants tips, to people who have been doing public speaking for years and just want to be a little bit better, to people who want to become a professional public speaker, how to develop an audience. If you'd like to do that in Los Angeles uh, at the start of June, I'll be doing a full day uh, workshop. Very small number of people, it'll, so it'll all be working concretely with the issues that you have. Um, so you might want to come along to that. We also just dropped a fundamentalist episode all about sex. Uh, looking at why it's so difficult to make sex sexy, uh, looking at purity rings as sex toys, looking at whether you prefer to go to a fetish party or an orgy, and also uh, talking about a drug that makes people not want to have sex with you. So if you want to listen to that, go on to iTunes. Brilliant. Lots to do. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.